Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. It's time to throw another log on the fire, campers. We've got a new story for you. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Sorry we haven't been featuring any music the last couple of episodes. I'm on an extended vacation, and I got a little behind scheduling the bands, but we will get back to our weekly band feature very soon. But... I am keeping up with our story schedule, and I've got a great one for you tonight. Steve, are you familiar with the F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, The Great Gatsby? Oh, yeah. I read it in English class a long time ago. I know it was made into a movie. It was kind of the Roaring Twenties, right? Yeah, it was made into a movie a couple times at least. I haven't seen the one with Leonardo DiCaprio, but I did like the Robert Redford version. I think I remember. Doesn't this take place during the Prohibition and the Jazz Age? That's the one. So I'm guessing that Great Gatsby has some sort of connection to Ohio. Well, that's the mystery. There are people who believe Jay Gatsby, that fictional, enigmatic, self-made millionaire who throws extravagant parties, was modeled, at least partly, after George Remus, Cincinnati's king of bootleggers. George Remus was a fascinating man, so brilliant and charismatic, he killed his unfaithful wife in broad daylight in front of numerous witnesses, then convinced a jury she deserved it. It's an immigrant, rags-to-riches tale, all with the backdrop of that wild and hedonistic jazz age. Okay, so I can't wait to hear about this one. You said it's a mystery, so that means we really don't know if he was the inspiration. Well, there's really no way to confirm it, F. Scott Fitzgerald being dead and all that. But folks at the Sealbach Hotel in Louisville, Kentucky, where the famous author did a lot of his drinking, said he met with George Remus a number of times at the hotel right around 1924. That was the year before The Great Gatsby was published. Too bad for Fitzgerald, because he missed the big finale of George Remus's life story, which came three years after that. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. How about I just tell you the story of George Remus? Oh, I'm ready for it. Let's do it. America had no idea what it was in store for when George Remus landed in New York City in 1883. Of course, he was just five years old. He'd been born in Landsberg, Germany, to Frank and Marie Remus, and immigrated with his parents. They spent a few years moving about and then settled in Chicago. If you're going to have your own criminal empire one day, Chicago is a pretty good training ground. But George started out straight enough. When he was a teenager, his dad became unable to work, so George helped support the family by working at his uncle's pharmacy. He decided to make a career of it. 
At the age of 19, he graduated from the Chicago College of Pharmacy, which became part of the University of Illinois, and became a certified pharmacist. He also proved to be quite the businessman. Just two years later, he bought that shop from his uncle, then bought another. George also took a wife. He married Lillian Clough, and they had a daughter, Romola Remus. Just as a side note, their daughter Romola became a child actress. It was the era of silent films, and eight-year-old Romola was tapped to play Dorothy in the 1908 version of The Wizard of Oz. Things were going well for George, but his heart just wasn't in the pharmacy industry. As successful as he was, he wanted out. He enrolled at the Illinois College of Law, and by the age of 24, he was a lawyer. George specialized in criminal defense, and he made a share of headlines. In 1913, Ohio newspapers couldn't get enough of one case because it involved a man captured in Lima, Ohio. The man, Charles Conway, originally from St. Mary's, Ohio, was a one-legged circus clown. His wife, Beatrice, was a former burlesque actress working as a lion tamer. They traveled with carnival companies as the club-footed clown and the burlesque queen. But it wasn't all fun and games with the Conways. They killed a woman named Sophia Singer, a Baltimore heiress, in 1912. Singer had met the Conways in Chicago and became their benefactor. For several weeks, she supported them financially. When the Conways learned she was about to leave, Conway, according to his own confession, struck her a blow with a doorknob wrapped in a handkerchief. Then, as she lay unconscious, he strangled her to death. The Conways fled Chicago and went to Lima in northwest Ohio, where Charles Conway's mother and sister lived. But they were discovered, captured, and returned to Chicago. And there, George Remus represented Conway's wife, Beatrice. The trial was an entertaining affair. At one point, it even featured a courtroom fistfight between George and Conway's defense attorney, Sam Foose, because the two men couldn't agree on which of their clients should testify first. The Conways were eventually found guilty, but the case only added to George's growing reputation. And then, in 1914, another case that turned George into a legal superstar, again featuring a man from Ohio. That man was William Cheney Ellis from Cincinnati. Ellis suspected his wife, Eleanor, was having an affair. And when she took a trip to Chicago, Ellis secretly followed her. He confronted her in a hotel room and shot and killed her. To defend him, George pioneered what today we know as the temporary insanity defense, virtually unheard of at the time. Ellis was found guilty, but it was still a victory of sorts. He received a sentence of just 15 years, and American law was changed forever. George was so good at what he did, he was soon earning half a million dollars a year. That's like $7 million annual income by today's standard. 
But in spite of his success in business and in life, it wasn't enough for George. In 1920, he wanted a new life, a new career, a new city, even a new family. He and Lillian divorced, and George remarried to the legal secretary he had been having an affair with, Imogene Holmes, a young divorcee with a daughter named Ruth. In 1920, the 18th Amendment took effect, making alcohol illegal. George had been watching his criminal clients become very wealthy, very fast, by selling bootlegged whiskey. Pretty soon, he realized he could use his own legal background, his pharmacy training, and the experiences learned through his own clients to become the most successful bootlegger of them all. The key was a loophole in the Prohibition Law, which allowed him to buy distilleries and pharmacies for the production of liquor for medicinal purposes, under a government license, no less. Then, he would have his own employees hijack his liquor supply so he could sell it illegally. There was one place that was perfect for this racket, Cincinnati, Ohio. There, 80% of America's government-bonded whiskey was located within a 300-mile radius. So, George moved to the Queen City to build his criminal empire, and by the summer of 1921, he owned 35% of all the liquor in the United States. He extended this shell game of buying legitimate pharmacies and then diverting the liquor for illegal purposes into New York and Chicago. But Cincinnati was the heart of it all, a city that seemed to be a world of its own where bootleggers felt free to act openly and brazenly. In Cincinnati's Westwood neighborhood, George maintained his primary warehouse facility on a farm called Death Valley. There, the pharmacy bourbon that he had hijacked from his own trucks was stored and sold. Armed guards and a payroll of 3,000 people, including politicians and law enforcement officials, kept things moving smoothly. In less than three years, George made $40 million. That's like $650 million today. In these early days of Prohibition, Long before Al Capone became a household name, the press had dubbed George Remus the king of bootleggers. People liked George. He made large contributions to local charities. Kids liked him, too. The local children played on the grounds of his estate and looked at him as a fatherly figure. It probably helped that occasionally he passed out $100 bills to them. Socially, George Remus was a gracious host. Like the great Gatsby, he was known for extravagant parties at his mansion. It stood at 825 Hermosa Avenue in the Price Hill neighborhood of Cincinnati, furnished with expensive artwork, sculptures, and a Grecian indoor swimming pool. He called it the Marble Palace. At his 1921 New Year's Eve party, he invited a hundred couples from the most prominent families in town 
and famously passed out diamond stick pins to all the men and gave each woman a brand new Pontiac automobile. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Here's something else that might remind you of the great Gatsby. George sold liquor, but he never drank the stuff. Never smoked, either. It was said during his soirees, he usually retreated to his library while his guests imbibed. The fictional Gatsby was elusive in this way as well. Anyway, the year after his famous New Year's Eve party, George threw a birthday party for his wife, Imogene. Imogene entertained the gathering by appearing in a bathing suit with other aquatic dancers, performing in the mansion's pool to the music of a 15-piece orchestra. George built that pool, by the way, because he was in training for a 100-mile swim in the Ohio River. George was a big believer in physical exercise. He'd been a competitive swimmer even back in Chicago. In 1907, he had set an endurance swimming record there that stood for decades. One cold winter day, he remained in Lake Michigan for five hours and 40 minutes. But George's plan to swim the Ohio River never happened. Something else intervened. You see, the feds are a lot harder to control than local authorities. And eventually, the Department of Justice caught up with George. They raided Death Valley Farm and arrested him, charging George with more than 3,000 violations of the Prohibition Law. In that federal courtroom, a jury convicted him in less than two hours. George's sentence was light. He spent just two years in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. But that was enough for his life to take a very unexpected twist. The prosecutor who had been pursuing him was Mabel Walker Willebrandt, known to her contemporaries as the First Lady of Law. She served as a U.S. Assistant Attorney General during Prohibition, and she was to George what Elliot Ness would become to Al Capone. In 1925, Willebrand slipped her best Justice Department investigator into prison with George undercover. Agent Franklin Dodge's job was to make friends with him and learn more about his empire and that of other bootleggers. And Agent Dodge was successful. 
he and George became prison buddies. And during a casual conversation, George happened to mention to his new best friend that George's wife, Imogene, had control of all of his money. Hmm. A multi-million dollar fortune and a beautiful woman whose husband was in jail. Suddenly, Agent Dodge saw a better future for himself, and it was not with the Justice Department. He resigned his post and began an affair with Imogene. Together, the handsome former Agent Dodge and beautiful Imogene took advantage of George's remaining time in prison to liquidate all of his assets and hide most of the money. Imogene gave her imprisoned husband just $100 of the extensive empire he had built. Then she had the nerve to try to have him deported, claiming his father had never become a citizen. When that didn't work, Imogene and former agent Dodge also reportedly offered a gang $15,000 to kill George. The would-be assassin worried that Imogene would double-cross him, instead went to George and told him about the plot. When George was released from prison, he was bankrupt and his wife filed for divorce. But he had the last word. On October the 6th, 1927, as George made his way to the Hamilton County Courthouse to finalize the divorce, he spotted the cab carrying Imogene and her daughter Ruth. He had his own driver chase them through Eden Park, a sprawling landscape overlooking the Ohio River. They forced Imogene's cab off the road, and there, in front of the spring house gazebo and a park filled with people, George jumped out and shot his wife in the stomach. She died in a local hospital later that day. Well, it seemed like a slam-dunk case of murder. I mean, all those witnesses. But George had time and again proved himself to be a mastermind. The prosecutor he faced was none other than 30-year-old Charles Taft, son of the former president, William Howard Taft, who at the time was chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, That alone would have caused this case to make headlines. People were also watching because George made threats as his trial neared, saying he would bring down some big people when he told his story. And as he often did, George talked to reporters in the third person. He often referred to himself in the third person, some say because his ego was so big He saw himself as an entity, not a person. George Remus's mouth will not be closed at trial, he told reporters. It need not be closed any longer. The statute of limitations has run out. Some very high reputations will be damaged when George Remus tells his story, he said. And it was going to be an entertaining trial for another reason. Don't forget, George Remus is the man who pioneered the insanity plea. He decided to defend himself and use the plea he'd made famous. 
George Remus is no longer the bootlegger, he told reporters. It is George Remus, the lawyer, who will appear in court. George Remus knows law. He told them he was rising at 3.30 every morning to do his exercises for an hour, then start working on his case. If George Remus loses his case, he said, George Remus will go down to dust. He will not flinch. If George Remus wins, prison walls never will know him again. And so George laid out his defense. In a nutshell, his wife's infidelity, the way she'd taken all his money, tried to have him deported, hired a hitman to kill him. Well, wasn't that enough to drive him mad, if only for the brief moment when he pulled that trigger? The jury bought it. They deliberated just 19 minutes before finding him not guilty by reason of insanity. Now, this didn't mean George was off scot-free. He was determined to be insane, after all. So he was taken to the asylum in Lima. He was there seven months before doctors released him, saying he was clearly not clinically insane. George was on his best behavior after that. He mentored another well-known Cincinnati lawyer, William Foster Hopkins, for several years. Then he moved across the Ohio River to Covington, Kentucky, where he lived out a quiet life at 1810 Greenup Street. Back in Cincinnati, his mansion gave way to a wrecking ball in 1934. George married a third time to his secretary, Blanche Watson. He lived modestly for two decades without incident before he had a stroke in 1950. He was under the care of a nurse for the next two years, before dying in 1952 at the age of 73. Now, F. Scott Fitzgerald isn't around to ask if parts of George's life and times and character inspired his Gatsby classic, but there's some filmography we don't have to guess at. George Remus is featured in the 2011 Ken Burns documentary, Prohibition, and he was included in the hit HBO series, Boardwalk Empire. His character in that, just like in life, talked about himself in the third person. George's story has also been told in uh, a dozen books. Most recently, he earned a chapter in a book called Deviant Devils, Highly Educated and Homicidal Doctors. It was written by Jake Rounds, a true crime author who lives in Cincinnati. That book also features chapters on Sam Shepard, famously accused and then acquitted of killing his wife, Dr. James Snook, who was head of vet medicine at Ohio State when he was convicted of murder and electrocuted, and an OSU teacher, Dr. Tom Murray, who killed his wife. So, some good Ohio stories in that book. So it sounds like the one thing we're missing is a movie just on Remus's life. What an amazing plot. I agree. You can't make this stuff up. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com, and we'll see you here back next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
Hey Hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.